Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Ken Fine, CEO of Heap Analytics and formerly the Chief Customer Officer and Head of Product at Medallia. Today, we will be covering three main topics. First, how product-led growth has impacted the priority of product analytics. Second, how to identify the highest priority product metrics for your company. And third, the growing importance of a new metric, product qualified leads. Ken, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. You bet, Ray. Great to see you and great to be here. In terms of my background, my original experience is more technical. Put myself through college on a Navy scholarship, served in the Navy as an engineer and a physicist, then moved out to California. And since then went to business school and have spent the last 20, closing in 25 years in high growth B2B SaaS companies in one case as part of a founding team at a company called Financial Engines in the financial technology space. And then after that, really primarily growth stage, you mentioned Medallia as one company, Heap another, so helping companies go from that post-product market fit through the rapid scaling phase through $100 million in revenue. And a lot of those businesses were doing interesting things with massive sets of data and building some type of algorithmic intellectual property on top of that data set. Well, that is a great background to be a guest on the Metrics That Major Up podcast. And the first topic I'd like to discuss a little bit with you is, you know, with 20, 25 years experience, we've both seen more traditional customer acquisition and expansion motions, often referred to as sales-led. But product-led growth is all the rage today across B2B SaaS with companies such as Twilio and Snowflake, even Slack kind of using that as their primary customer acquisition motion. Where do you think we are in the maturity of product-led growth, Ken? It's a good question. I believe we're still early in this cycle. Clearly, product-led growth has been around for a while in the B2C world, where all have had experiences with different forms of free trial, freemium experiences, ways to experience the product before we purchase that product or purchase some subscription to a platform or a service. You know, that model has been migrating to B2B SaaS. And the way I would think about it is from a framework standpoint is along a continuum where at one extreme, you could have companies that are truly purely product-led, meaning there is no touch from a sales professional at all. Everything from product introduction to trial, to purchase, renewal, expansion, the whole thing is literally run by the product. So very scalable. The other extreme would obviously be the older model, which is purely sales-led, which we're all familiar with, which is driven through a traditional sales process. Well, I know, you know, I've ran a lot of B2B sales teams in the SaaS industry, and I've been receiving some texts and emails like, Ray, do you think this PLG, product-led growth phenomenon, is going to impact the future of my sales career? And my perspective was, no, I think it may change exactly how you engage, when you engage, some of the skill sets. But what do you think, Ken? Do you think that 
Sales-led growth and product-led growth can coexist or do you have to go one way or the other? That's also a really good question. So I do have a point of view about the natural equilibrium and where this will go. So if you think about sales-led and what is often thought of as the gold standard for sales-led, and that would be, at least in my perspective, kind of the John McMahon School of Sales Leadership from PTC and BMC and Blade Logic, where Medic or MedPick was created, which is now you know everywhere in the, in the sales world, where you know different value selling methodologies were created. That world would be sales led, and then product led. You mentioned some companies and others such as Atlassian or Tableau or App Dynamics, Dropbox have started to push more into product led motions. My opinion is that the future, if we were to fast forward to the highest performing go to market motions will be an artful combination of the best of each. I mean, essentially what you're doing with product-led is you're trying to remove friction. You're trying to take friction out of the process and get more leverage, but there will be, depending on the product or the service, clearly opportunities and places where you're going to want world-class, just like we have in the past, world-class sales-led motions. And essentially what they'll be doing is picking up, if you will, more qualified leads from customers that have signaled intent and I've already gotten through a lot of the self-education. Uh, we're going to double click on something you just said about more qualified leads. But before I go there, because it's such a passion of mine, I wanted to kind of step back for a minute and once again, talk about product-led growth. And I've always seen it more of a, a developer-centric type solution that's really succeeded or kind of messaging collaboration where there's viral expansion. Do you think PLG is relevant just to certain segments of the B2B SaaS and cloud industry, or do you think it has broad relevance? I think the relevance is, is very broad, potentially to everything. I mean, everything is the ultimate and broad. But if you go back to just simplify, what is product-led growth? Product-led growth is about having the product do the work. It's about removing friction from the purchase process, the customer acquisition and retention and growth process. So really what it does, if you put on your product management hat and your product designer hat, is it puts pressure on the product team to get creative and ambitious in removing friction from that experience and making it easier for people to achieve different milestones and aha moments. And I think that, that can apply to you know, virtually any type of platform. The one comment I would add though is that you know, clearly some products or you know, SaaS services are better suited than others depending on the setup requirements, configuration requirements, data requirements, security issues or challenges, particularly when you get to the enterprise market. So not to say that they're all equal. And I, you know, to your comment, Ray, in cases where you have a very technical audience, often they are able to self-serve through some of those challenges in a way you know, they're more adept at that than perhaps another user might be. But I wouldn't categorically you know, put that type of user or product in and others out. Got it. Got it. Because I was even thinking about one of your experiences, which was financial software, right? Would Let's go with financial software. Would that be appropriate for a PLG motion? Absolutely. In fact, somewhat ironically, when I was at a company called Financial Engines, I ran product there and I was part of the early team there. You could call us the founding team. And we developed a product-led motion. It was before product-led growth was a term. But essentially what we created there was a motion where the sales team's job was essentially to land what was turned into a essentially a free trial for all the employees within a company. And they were test driving a online financial experience 
And then there is an opportunity for all of those employees to essentially up-level their experience, which they would pay for. So we were creating a true combination of sales-led plus product-led. And to do that, actually, you know, to the previous comment, we had to design something that was incredibly easy to use because we were distributing it to literally every single employee within a company. And then ultimately, once that model took root and that company ultimately went public and is now was acquired as a public company, has probably north of 500 million in revenue, 80% of the revenue is product-led coming from product-led, 20% is coming from sales-led, but they both require each other to work. Wow, that's a great experience. And I think now, kind of in the master of the obvious, I look at your current company, Heap, and it's really big in product analytics. I would say, well, if you're going to deploy a product-led growth motion, that product analytics has to be critical. But my question is, is it primarily you deploy it first in customer acquisition or use it across the entire customer lifecycle? It's definitely the latter. So just to clarify for the audience, what product analytics is, often referred to it as digital product analytics, just to make it clear, we're talking about digital experiences. To make it extremely simple, it is really all about understanding customer journeys or digital customer journeys. And that could be any journey. So it could be a journey that's related to you know, product-led growth or customer acquisition. But the goal in product analytics is basically understand a customer journey in an agile way, meaning it's very easy for the person doing the analysis and to identify friction points. So that's you know any place people are struggling or places people are not struggling and therefore learn from that. And that's going to be vital, absolutely vital for PLG because PLG is largely about adopting a hypothesis and data-driven approach. Have, have a hypothesis for how do you drive acquisition or how do you drive getting you know, someone from stage A to stage B in an experience or a process, try it, check the data, iterate, iterate, iterate. So you, you need a source of truth for that data and product analytics platforms like Heap are excellent sources of truth for that type of work. Well, one of the questions I've always had about product-led growth, and I've never been an operating executive where product-led growth was the primary customer acquisition and expansion motion, was the term activation rate. Because to me, I think about sales-led, and you always look at funnel metrics, right? From initial awareness, engagement, all the way to close, and you can have some predictability of the funnel. But it seems like in a product-led growth model, you're going to have very different, I'll call it customer acquisition funnel metrics. And activation point is going to be different for almost every company and every solution. Is that right? And can you explain to the audience a little bit about what activation rate is? Sure. So it's a good question. And so activation rate is subjective and you can have valid debates. We do internally at Heap as to, as we practice product-led, you know, what's the point in the experience, which you would consider a, a user or prospective buyer to be activated, but it's basically a point in the journey where you believed you've hit a relevant milestone. That means now this person, you know, this user is engaged in and actually using your platform. You know, the way I tend to think of the journey in this context is you think about the customer journey that you're trying to enable and you think through different aha moments. What are, literally imagine putting this out on a whiteboard and saying, here's step one, step two, step three, or here are different paths someone could take. And then putting you know, stars or exclamation points on these are the aha moments where people are now gaining insight into the problem that your product or platform service can solve. And they're now experiencing some value, ideally that exceeds 
the investment or the cost that they've made. And they literally, hopefully go, aha. <laughs> and you can have multiple of those past the initial activation to at different levels of engagement, different levels of activation, if you will. Yeah. And identifying that aha moment, right? We're in activation rate. You want to measure that. Is that more art or is there real science you can put behind that and say, if when they reach this point, they have an X percent higher probability to convert to paid or to reach this level of retention, et cetera? Ultimately, when you ask, is it art or is it science? Ultimately, the way I think of it is it, at the end of the day, you validate that you've gotten your aha moment with science. I mean, you should be using some platform like a product analytics platform to demonstrate that when users get to different places in a journey, that it does have an impact on metrics you care about. So you can look at, you know, once someone completes this use case or completes this experience, how does that show up in terms of their likelihood to return, their retention? If you're in the financial services world, their share of wallet, you're in the e-commerce world, future purchases. However, to get there requires some art, meaning you're going to start with hypotheses and say, we believe that if someone does X, Y, or Z, you, know, you create a hypothesis, we think they're more likely to come back or purchase again or have a higher NPS score, or tell other people about our platform. And then you validate. So that's the art piece and coming up with the creative hypotheses, but then you, you should be validating that quantitatively. So ultimately, there should be a source of truth that's giving you confidence that you've actually defined aha moments that drive a business outcome and a business impact. And if I'm not mistaken, Ken, not only do you have a great product analytics company, you use a PLG motion, correct? We do use a PLG motion, yes. Our company is interesting. The company originally started in the early days post-founding as really pure product-led. So it was you know, free trial, come try heap. We then over time migrated as we started to scale into a more classic sales-led motion. And the product-led motion was still there, but not getting the intense you know, hypothesis-driven iterative development that I just described. And we are really just now actively embracing both at the same time and figuring out some of what I talked about at the beginning of the talk here on how do you get the right combination? Because it is not A or B. I do firmly believe that certainly for a business like ours, it's A and B. And would you mind sharing with our audience maybe some of those predictive links that you've identified for your own customer acquisition and expansion motion that for you are really proof points of when customers are highly more likely to convert and or grow? Sure. So in our case, uh, we have found that when people are engaged in the Heat platform, we find if they use our, what we call our querying tools, our ability to do different types of data queries and analyses, if they engage in those activities a certain number of times, so we've gotten it down to a quantitative target, that the likelihood that they are engaged, therefore, going forward, that the customer at the higher level, not just the user, but the customer is happy and has high retention rates and expansion rates, all that goes up. So we have found there's a, we actually call it monthly querying users. So it's a metric that we've developed based you know, really on this kind of analysis. Another example is, you know, we have the ability with Heap to send data into other sources, such as, let's say, Snowflake. And we have found that when a customer engages in that particular feature, that there's a step function change, a dramatic change in the likelihood that that customer stays with Heap. So, you know, a little bit like the Facebook seven friends in 10 days, we found our equivalent of that 
And all of that work also came from the art science combination of having a hypothesis. You know, we'd sat around a table like any other group saying, hmm, what do we think actually drives customers to be happier and to retain and grow? And then started querying the data and testing the hypotheses. And then ultimately actually did some of our own data science on the data to get confident that this was you know, statistically significant, but not just directionally true. And this theme of marketing meets product analytics, one of the questions and discussions I've been in multiple times is how do I optimize the number of times I reach out to a product-led growth user to convert them to paying? Do you kind of look at that also? Do you reach out three times? Do you reach out eight times? Or it's based upon how many times you reach once they hit an activation point? How do you decide that, Ken? It's a good question. There's some art and science there as well. It's an interesting topic and we actually have a team put together that's testing exactly that right now. So I don't have the definitive answer, but what we're doing there, the way we're approaching that is one, recognizing that you know, the classic marketing qualified lead and then now product qualified lead live together. And there are going to be some people who just come in, raise their hand and say, I just want to talk to a salesperson and, and begin a purchase process. And that's fine for those who want to do that. There are others who will say, I want to just experience, in our case, heap and see where that takes me. So what we do now is we monitor for each person who's engaging with heap where they are in the journey and which of those aha moments or activation points they have hit. And then based on that, we have built a team of specialists that specifically reach out to those people who are engaging with us in that way. And then we evaluate the results of those outreach say, how many times do we need to reach out depending on what stage you are in the process to get a response? And then what are our, you know, our experiences and close rates for people at different steps? So I don't have a, a firm heuristic and to reach out this number of times, but I'd say the global learning has been which is another interesting topic is since that is truly in a test and learn state, we took that and created our own test and learn team. So that our sales led team could keep doing what they're doing while we're really figuring out this element of an integrated, you know, product led and sales led approach. And then as we get that figured out to the level you insinuated in your question of like, okay, it's this many reach outs at this step and it's ready to scale. Then we roll that out to the rest of our sales team. Well, I know another big topic of discussion with companies who are just starting on the product-led growth journey, and if they came from a sales-led is, well, if I have this kind of key insights into how they're using the product, and as you've mentioned, maybe it's when they start looking at integration to other sources, what is the resource that reaches out? Is it a pre-sales kind of engineer consultant? Is it a customer success person? Is it a salesperson? Which direction are you going, Ken? Yeah, so that's also something that we're currently testing. But what we're learning is that you need two types of skills here. And it may be at the end of the day, if we were to fast forward a couple of years and ask the same question and just look at, you know, what are the best practices? I think we're to some degree developing a new type of sales professional. One skill is this is still a prospect that you're speaking with. So you need the ability to do some discovery, understand the problem that you're solving, communicate value depending on the situation, then move on into a procurement discussion, et cetera. So there's a you know, sales toolkit. On the other hand, the bar for understanding the product has gone up. So you really do need to have people in those conversations who are acting in a model where their job is to help that person get value. So in that sense, it feels more like a support conversation. 
And the ideal person has some of both. So as an example, in our case, the team that's doing this test and learn, the person who's running that is a former solutions consultant for us who did pre-sales, has also worked in product marketing. So really has a, an excellent understanding of our product, of our users, has been closely exposed to the sales process itself and is able to coach people through that artful combination of help the person on the call be successful, but also transition that into a, a sales conversation. Yeah, I'm going to throw out a hypothesis for you and see what you think of it, Ken. And, you know, often we are biased by our own experiences. And when I was early in my career in the tech world, I worked at a division of GE and I'm an engineer by schooling. And that was my first job. And they had a program where they hired engineers or technical people and trained them how to be sales and marketing professionals because they thought you needed that blend. And it was a rotational program, right? Do you think more and more tech companies, especially B2B cloud companies, should think about rotational programs where they bring a early career professional in and have them move from product management to customer service, customer success, sales, and see which they're best predisposition to make their career, but also they have a great cross-functional perspective? It's an interesting, I'm familiar with the GE model, didn't go through it, but familiar with the model. You know, it's, it's kind of a two-part question you've asked and implicitly. One is, is that an interesting model to embrace in general? And then, you know, how might that help organizations develop and scale a product-led growth approach? So going in reverse order, you know, my personal opinion is that if you are just trying to design for a high-performing product-led, sales-led hybrid, where you've got some of both, that you'd want to have people come in and go through a, a process where they really learn the product well. So that could be done through a form of rotation. A good example could be solution consulting, like as in pre-sales or support and or support. So I think those are places you could really learn that skill. Then you'd want to go through, I believe, again, my opinion, classic sales training and really learn, you know, discovery and learn uh, value selling and that whole toolkit and bring them together in one professional. Now, the second question we asked, which is what about in general ways of building high-performing SaaS businesses? Would you want to have a rotational program like that? It's an interesting idea. I think, you know, getting people exposure, again, my opinion to product and customers, I think that's where the magic happens when, when almost any role you're in, if you have a good understanding of the customer and customer empathy, and you understand the way the product works and the way the product could work, meaning, you know, what are the core capabilities that could be expanded upon that gives you enormous breadth in your ability to add value and pick different paths, whether you can go to marketing, product marketing, product management, customer success, sales, and others. That's the first principles I would apply in thinking about a program like that. Yeah. And let me kind of add on to that. Do you find hiring, whether it's product people or marketing people out of a digital B2C company really helps facilitate the kind of growth of a PLG model in a B2B business? You know, we haven't hired, we haven't actually done that. At least I know we may have certain people with that background, but as a target profile, we haven't been hiring out of B2C companies but that would be an interesting profile. We've been more focused on people who, since PLG is, as we talked about at the beginning, still a new and growing field, and there aren't many people with that expertise. We've been looking at literally just the, the set of companies that have been doing that and trying to find people who 
you know, are bringing to the table and experience to bringing PLG to market, even if it was a rough one. And they say, hey, my company wasn't the gold standard here, but I've been through an experience and I've got some, some scars and some learning. Yeah, well, after my almost 30 years, I find I've learned a lot more from my mistakes and failures than I did from the successes. How true. So we're going to circle back to something you said early. And I said, man, I can't wait to really dig into this. And that is product qualified leads. I even started my company because I saw such huge friction between sales and marketing. And a lot of it was around leads. So we invented this thing called marketing qualified leads. And we tried to put scoring algorithms behind it. And we still had the issue of, you know, these leads suck. No, no, you're just not following up on them quickly enough. So number one for our audience, what is a product qualified lead? And how do you go about identifying what the scoring variable should be? Yeah. So a product qualified lead, you would expect given the abbreviation, it's about someone who is using the product and has reached some point of activation, some point of qualification where you'd say, there's a reason to believe that this person has interest in our case in heap or in your case, your service. And it's time now to reach out or perhaps you have a truly self-serve model and the person can go further and further on their own. But you now have a, as the name connotes, you have a qualified lead based on product engagement. So that's the definition. And then, you know, the way to think about it or the way, a way to think about it is you have different levels of qualification, just like you would in any type of qualification model. So based on how far and the types of activities the person has engaged within, within your product, that is indicative of different levels of interest and engagement and value experience. And based on that, you can make different assumptions around how good is this lead? How qualified is this lead? And those, I believe, are becoming the most valuable leads because they really are qualified. This isn't a hypothesis as to whether you think this person might be a good fit. Their actions with your platform are demonstrating that they are or very likely are a good fit. And does that product qualified lead kind of calculation and score does it reside in a product analytics platform or does it reside elsewhere? It can be either. So within Heap, you could create and configure dashboards, for example, that would help you evaluate and quantify a PQL. It doesn't need to be within the product analytics platform. You could export data from that platform and then have a separate model where you're looking at essentially different users and how successful they were getting to different points in the experience and then have your own algorithm for scoring and weighting the quality of that lead. And then like any scoring process over time, you would calibrate that with actual results so that you're continuing to learn that, hey, when person gets to this point in experience, that means the likelihood of converting into a paying customer is this when we reach out in this way. Yeah, one of the things this kind of, I I love how innovative entrepreneurs can be. So I'm going to go on a a tangent for just a minute. A couple of my clients have tried to take product analytic information and import that into their CRM system so that the person doing the outreach is informed by exactly what's happened within a product utilization. But CRMs seem to be really misarchitected for that type of information. Would you agree with that? And is there an opportunity for a a new segment of product there? I think so. So we also participate in that type of data integration. So heap data can be exported into different CRM systems and it is used to inform either customer success managers or account managers on retention risk, churn risk, 
or expansion, upsell, cross-sell opportunities. I do think there's an opportunity for the platforms themselves to have some of those indicators. So you don't need to you know, find that in another platform, but that, you know, that is how we're operating today. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up this episode of the Metrics of Major Up with a couple questions that get to know Ken a little bit better. But before I go there, are there any topics or questions around product-led growth and how product analytics impacts that that I haven't asked that you'd like to share with our listening audience, Ken? I think there's been a good overview. The one comment I would add is one of our learnings is one of the areas of friction you can run into in trying to embrace product-led growth is if you have a largely sales-led model, how do you manage the change? It's non-trivial and non-obvious. And you know, the way we are approaching that, and we have conversations about this frequently, is identifying the, again, think about product-led growth and sales-led growth as a continuum, identify the element of the journey or the experience that you want to work on find a way to isolate that and test that. And then as you get a reason to believe that, you know, this free trial experience or freemium experience or expansion experience is working, then roll that into the broader team so that you're not creating unnecessary friction and havoc and chaos, you know, with the broader team that's used to operating a certain way. So it's really a test and learn facility that as you validate, migrate that into the broader organization. So that'd be one piece I would add to our discussion. Yeah, that's really good insight. It's almost like we experienced 20 years ago when companies were thinking about evolving from a traditional enterprise perpetual software license that was deployed on the client site to a hosted SaaS model. And we found that number one, the competencies and orientation of people really did need to shift. And the last thing you wanted to do was hit your entire client base with, hey, we're moving to a subscription model and this is a new architecture, but take maybe a single cohort or even a new target market and introduce the subscription model there. Would you say the same thing with PLG for existing sales-led companies? Maybe choose a new market to test or do you test it with an existing customer segment? You know, I think, in my opinion, I think either can work. I think the principle needs to be, you know, identify a safe place that you can test and learn. And then once you have learned enough that you think it's worthy of rolling out, you have the ability to scale from there. So the fundamental principle we apply is, you know, nail it, then scale it. And that could be new market, could be a segment within a market. As an example, within Heap, we were looking carefully at our, we call our high velocity segment. So, you know, smaller companies. And we're using that. It's not a new market for us, but it is a segment that is very effective and appropriate for testing this model. Great advice. Well, let's get to know you a little bit better, Ken. So the first question is, you know, which CEO or company do you think is a must follow for SaaS entrepreneurs and operators in 2021? That's an interesting question. So there are obviously so many B2B SaaS in a proliferating stage right now. I think I'll answer it this way. One of the things that I've been focused on now with my CEO hat during the pandemic has been, how do you improve the way people work together virtually? And I'm starting to spend more time just looking at platforms that enable better virtual collaboration. And the way I've been framing it to our company is, hey, we're not just trying to live in a virtual model or virtual first, but we're trying to achieve virtual excellence. So let's not just survive and get on Zoom calls, but let's get really good 
at how we operate virtually. I think, you know, to that end, Miro is very interesting and we've been using that. I've been using it personally for some of the the virtual whiteboarding capabilities. So I think, you know, Andre there's doing some really interesting work and I'd put that on my list. Okay. So Miro and Andre Kushit is one of your highlights, correct? It is. Yes. Okay. Well, a little bit similar and adjacent, which tool, not your own, should every SaaS company be using as they scale? I've got a short list here. I'll respect time to be quick, but you know, we talked a lot in this discussion as it relates to product-led growth and beyond product-led growth of being data-driven and you know, being hypothesis-driven and validating those hypotheses with a source of truth. You mentioned that some of my background before Heap was at Medallia, which is a voice of the customer platform. And you know, there are obviously other platforms in that space. I think that's a must-have. Perhaps I'm biased coming from that space, but in particular, having been a former product manager, having spent a large part of my career in product, I strongly believe that to get the full picture of a customer experience, you want to balance quantitative and qualitative. It's not A or B, it's A and B. And by looking at the two, looking at the journeys people are taking, where they're succeeding, where they're failing, and then looking at their voice in those platforms, now you can put together a full story that helps you understand what's going on, why it's going on, and therefore you can create hypotheses as to what to do about it. Got you. So voice of customer platforms would be your top recommendation right now. It really is. Okay. And our last question is, and it's interesting, my daughter's graduating from college this weekend. Congratulations. So, though she's not very open to my advice, as you can probably imagine, but the question is, if you were talking to a very recent college graduate or early career professional who wants to be the next great SaaS founder, what advice would you give them? I do have a point of view on this. and I've talked to my own son about it, who's uh, starting his own company. First, I'll say this, that in respect, there are many different paths to being a successful founder. So I don't want to express you know, hubris and believe that I know the way there is an A way. That said, I do have a point of view on, on a way that I believe is a good way. And I think of it in the following way that to be really good in the founding role, I think there are three things that are very helpful to become deep on. And it's rare that people actually are deep in all three. So my list are the following three. One is understanding core technology. So you could essentially equate that with a computer science-like background. I don't mean to say you have to have a degree in CS, but get the technology and and how things are built. Uh, That's piece one. Piece two is understand customers. So you need to be customer facing, you need to have an ideally develop an actual approach, which could be the subject of a whole nother podcast, but an actual approach, systematic approach to interfacing with customers, learning from customers, understanding their world, their problem set. Some of that can be done old school in the field, you know, talking and observing. Some of that is through some of the tools we talked about today, voice of the customer platforms, product analytics platforms, but get the tech, get the customer. And then the third piece in between, which is where a lot of people don't spend their time, this is a passion of mine, is design. So understand literally the interface that brings those two things together. And if you can get all three of those in one brain, where you get the underlying tech, you understand customers, and you have a method by which you understand customers that you can use and you can apply to others in your organization, and you don't need to be a designer but you need to have an appreciation for an understanding of design at the founding level, not talking about a large scale company, but now 
that's a lot of power in one brain where you can start to really think about, hey, what's the problem I'm solving? How might we build it? How might we represent this at the application layer to a customer? And you can move very quickly through your hypothesis generating processes and getting feedback and developing versions of that which you want to create. I think that is great advice. Understand the underlying technology, understand customers and how they behave and how they act and bring it all together in a very simple, engaging design element. That's great advice, Ken. And thank you, Ken Fine, who's the CEO of Heap Analytics for being a guest on the Metrics That Major Up podcast. And to our listeners, if you're enjoying our guests and the topics that we're covering, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and provide us a rating and recommendation how we can be even better for you. Ken, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Ray. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.